All right, well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to our Sunday worship. This is your first time here. I'm glad that you could be joining us on this Labor Day weekend. Uh, again, I do want to encourage all of you who've been visiting our church, especially uh, during the COVID season, if you've been joining us online or since we've been regathering here at Buena Park uh, in person, this is you. We, I do encourage you to attend the welcoming lunch. Uh, I'll be there. Uh, members of our staff will be there and members of our church will be there. And uh, I know one reason why we do the welcoming lunch is uh, I've been a newcomer at church before. And I know when I visit a church, it's great the first week, everyone says hello. It's also great the second week where more people say hello. It's the third week where it gets a little awkward. It's like, what do you do with yourselves after church? And it can be a little bit challenging. Uh, and that's why we have these lunches is for us to get to ask you guys to know who our church is a bit more. And even to meet people, but also to know how can you get connected to our church and into this community, especially as we move forward during the season. So I hope to see all of you there. And there will be sign-ups for that so that we can anticipate who's going to be coming. And so if you want to sign up, uh, our tables are out there after service to go and sign up for that. Or you can always go on our website and we'll be posting it on our social media as well. Um, but for everybody in our whole church, I think we said this last week, but just to also keep in mind, uh, we're going to have something for our whole church soon at the end of the month, which is a, an all-church park day uh, to celebrate the end of California summer, which is going to be September. It's going to be at the end of uh, after service, and we do invite everyone to come. Uh, it's going to be our last time we could go outdoors, and uh, we want to do this to help build up our church community because, again, we've been apart for so long, and we just see this as a nice way to cultivate community and to grow us uh, in our church. Uh, so we're going to have that. Gonna, that's going to take place at the end of September, I believe it's the last September of the month, and we'll give more information about that. Um, but that's also uh, the reason why we're doing this series that we've been going through in the book of Nehemiah to help build up our church as well. Uh, this is your first time here. We've been going through this Old Testament book called Nehemiah for the past six weeks. And Nehemiah, uh, pretty much the whole story is about God regathering a people and not just regathering them, but rebuilding them and restoring them in their land. And Nehemiah chapters 1 to 7 that we went through, it was all about rebuilding the wall. There, the city was, the temple was built, the city was built, but they had no walls. So it was all about seven chapters of building this wall so that the cities could be protected. But then once chapter 7 hit and it was over, the walls had been done. But then all of a sudden in chapter 8, which we went through last week, it's all about now rebuilding the people. It's not just about the building, but the people who are living in this building, what kind of people are they? And so what God was planning to do in chapters 8 to 12 is he's going to rebuild the people. And we started that last week. And these next few weeks, we're going to see what it looks like to build up God's people. And last week, it started with going through God's word. The word of God has to be central. The word of God has to shape uh, God's people. The word of God has to be present amongst the community. And today, what we're going to look at is Nehemiah chapter 9. And in Nehemiah chapter 9, we're going to look at another element that God uses to build up and to strengthen his regathered people. So if you have your Bibles, if you can turn to Nehemiah chapter 9. If you don't, we will have it on the screen as well. But I always encourage us to have our Bibles so that we could turn to it and we'll be referring to it throughout the passage or throughout the message. So Nehemiah chapter 9. It's a long chapter, so I'm not going to go through all of it. We're actually going to read ver uh, parts of verses 1 to 10. I might skip around a little bit. And then we're going to go to verses 26 to 31. So Nehemiah chapter 9, verses 1 all the way to verse 10. And then verses 26 to 31. So if you're there with me, uh, this is starting in verse 1, the reading of God's word. Now, on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth. And with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their father. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day 
For another quarter of it, they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. And then we could go over and skip to verse 5. Then the Levites, Jeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Hashbaniah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, and Petaliah said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them. And the host of heaven worships you. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abraham and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made with him the covenant to give to his offspring, the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite. And you have kept your promise for you are righteous. And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his land. For you knew that they acted arrogantly against our father. Now let's skip over to verse 26. Nevertheless... They were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you and they committed great blasphemies. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer and at the time of their suffering, they cried out to you and you heard them from heaven and according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. But after they had rest, they did evil again before you, and you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven, and many times you delivered them according to your mercies, and you warned them in order to turn them back to your law. Yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules, which if a person does them, he shall live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey. Many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of the people of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. This is a reading of God's word. Uh, so a few years ago, my parents, they traveled for two months uh, overseas, so they were gone, and they asked my older sister, can you watch over the home while we're gone, because, you know, mail is coming in, and water the plants, and so forth, so my parents are gone, they traveled, and about a month in, when they were gone, I get a phone call from my sister. My sister calls me going, Tom, you need to come to the house right now, and bring every towel that you have in your house. So I was like, well, this doesn't sound good. And apparently what happened was my sister had come the night before to check the mail and to water plants. But when she opened the door, all this water came flooding out of the house. Because apparently the, while my parents were gone, uh, the pipe to the laundry machine had burst open and had just been flooding the house all night. And so my sister came into the house and water was literally, she said, up to her ankles. And so she told me in the morning, hey, you need to come because there's that flood that's there. and We need to dry all the water out in our parents' house. So we went to my parents' house, I brought all these towels, and we opened the door, nothing was there. No water. Just like little puddles here and there. And I was like, what happened? And my sisters are super confused, so we just wiped down all the water that we could with the towels that we had. And we thought, well, I guess problem solved. Well, until we talked to our neighbor, because our neighbor's a handy person, and our neighbor said, ah, the problem's not solved, it just began. Uh, the reason why the water is gone is all the wooden floors absorb the water. And so what's most likely happening right now is that it's rotting and you don't really see it. There's going to be mold that's going to grow. And so just because you don't see the rot right now doesn't mean it's not there. And if you don't do something about it, you're going to be in trouble. And so pretty much 
we had to do something. So even though it looked great, we decided, you know, and we talked to our parents, and we had to hire contractors. They literally tore out the entire floors of the house, and they had to put in new wooden floors throughout the entire household. It was a long endeavor, all while my parents were gone. It just happened. A brand new household they came into when they returned from their travels. And the reason why is because we couldn't just ignore that. It was something that, even though if my parents didn't realize it, it was going to rot. And if we didn't do something about it, it would not be a place that would be livable. We see something similar happen in Nehemiah chapter 9. Something similar is happening in this chapter. The temple is rebuilt. The walls are restored. And now the question is, will God be present here? Will God be present in the city now that the people have built the walls and built the temple? And there's a problem to deal with first. There's something that's wrong that they need to address before God comes. There's something rotten as well happening in this city, but it's not underneath their temple or their walls. It's something deeper. It's in the people. It's in their hearts. The Bible calls this sin. Sin is something that when people, when they turn their hearts away from God and his ways, and they try to become their own gods, that's something that is just dwelling in the heart of every single person. And the people in the book of Nehemiah, they recognize that they've been in this situation before where they, God restored them, regathered them, blessed them, they built a nice city. But the problem was they were exiled to a foreign nation over and over again. They were exiled and left because God did not want to dwell with them because of their sin. They would not address the sins of their hearts. And that's why this time around, as they regather to ensure that will God be present in their lives, they spend time together as God's people, they have an assembly, and they use it to confess and repent of their sins. In a similar way as God's church, even though God blesses his people, he restores us through Christ, there's still something rotting inside of us. There's still something that's called sin in every human heart. And the question is, well, what do we do about this? What do we do about this rottenness of sin? And what we see in Nehemiah chapter 9 is God gives us something. God instructs us to do something. As his people, we are called to practice confession and repentance. Repentance, I know it's a word with a lot of baggage that we'll talk about in a little little bit. But literally the word means is turn around. It means to turn. It means to change your mind. It means you're headed somewhere and you turn the other way. And that's what it means to even be a Christian. The first step to being a Christian is what we call conversion is you repent. Your life was going one way. You meet Christ, and the first thing Jesus tells us is, don't just believe, but repent and believe. Repent and believe. You must turn to believe. That's how you begin the Christian life, but it's also how you continue the Christian life. The Christian life is meant to be this constant repentance, this constant turning. As the famous reformer Martin Luther said, all of life is meant to be one of repentance. But here's the problem with repentance. If you're like me, there's a lot of, again, like I said, baggage when it comes to that word, repentance. For some of us, repentance, it's very dramatic. We think of a, a retreat. We think of an altar call, this dramatic moment where you're just mourning about the things that you've done wrong. And because it's so dramatic, a lot of us, we don't really do it. Who could sustain a practice like that? Or for some of us, the word repentance, it's so religious, it's so familiar. We grew up in church just hearing that word that it's almost like something we take for granted. Like, oh yeah, of course, that's important. Or for some of us, we may not even think we need to repent. We live decent lives. I didn't kill anybody. I didn't steal anything. I didn't cuss anybody out. So it's something that's not really on our radar these days. But as we've been going through Nehemiah, if we want to experience renewal in our church, 
if we want to experience revival in our hearts, if we want to experience God's presence in our lives, repentance is actually the normal rhythm that has to be there in God's people. Because that's the type of people who we see God wants to dwell with. God wants to dwell with people, not just people who worship God, not just those of us who know God's word, but those of us who are constantly in recognition of our need for the Lord, our constant recognition that we need to turn from our ways. And that's the type of people who God wants to dwell with. That's the type of people who God will show his presence to. And so today, that's what we're going to be talking about. We're going to talk about this fun topic of repentance. We're going to talk about what it looks like. And then, most excitedly, we get to practice it because we're taking the Lord's Supper together at the end. And so before we take the Lord's Supper, I do hope we have a time where we as a church can practice repentance together. But before we practice it, we're going to talk about repentance by looking at Nehemiah chapter 9 in three ways. First, we're going to talk about the struggle with repentance. Why is it so hard? Why is it hard for God's people to repent? Number two is the intimacy in repentance. How repentance actually leads to intimacy. And number three, we're going to talk about the practice of repentance. So what does it actually look like to repent? So the struggle, the intimacy, the practice. First, the struggle with repentance. So Nehemiah chapter 9, this chapter we just read, it begins where we know there's going to be some type of meeting taking place. It's, a, it's like a prayer meeting that's taking place. Our church, we've had a, we had a prayer meeting a few weeks ago, and when you came, a lot of us didn't know what we're doing except we're praying. Just come, because we're going to pray. Here, they're a little bit more specific. They're not just going to come to pray, but all God's people at this time are gathering together for this long prayer meeting, except there's a specific theme to this prayer. They're going to pray a prayer of confession. And everybody knows this because look what it says in verse 1. Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. Look, notice the way they're dressed up. They're not just coming as they are, but they're, wearing, they're fasting, they didn't eat. They're wearing sackcloth, which is like dirty clothing. And they have dirt on their head. What is going on there? It's like when you go to a funeral. Everyone wears black. That's just what you do when you go to a funeral. When you go to a prayer meeting or confession, this is what you wear. That's just what the people did. And we see in verse 2, that's what they did. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners, and they stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. This is a meeting of confession where you repent of your sins. I don't know if you ever experienced something like that. Probably the closest that maybe many of us have is when you were in high school and you went to a high school retreat. The first day is fun. It's an introduction. The second morning is great. But then you know the third, the, the third night... The third session, the evening before the retreat's over, that's the night, right? That's the night where like, oh, something's going to go down. The, the, the preacher's going to bring a message. The praise team, they're going to sing not just three songs. They're going to sing like 13 songs. And we know that the lights are going to dim at one point, And the pastor's going to lead the people to do something crazy. Like, hey, you know, in light of the message we heard, you know we're all sinners. And so here's a piece of paper in front of you. Write down the worst sin. The worst sin he ever did. Now here's a cross. Nail it to the cross. And we do something crazy like that and everyone starts crying. And in my mind, that's kind of what a night of repentance looks like, right? You talk about your sins. You see it on the cross. You kind of mourn about that. And that's how the night takes place. Well, here we see the night happening, something similar. They're gathered, about to repent. They're about to mourn. And yet when they pray, because the Levites at the time, they're saying, let's all pray and open this prayer of repentance. The prayer looks really different than how we imagine. It's really different than the modern way that people experience that last retreat. Because he sets the tone in verse 5. It says, hey, before we pray, this is why we're praying this prayer of repentance. Look what it says in verse 5. Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. 
Blessed be your glorious name by which is exalted above all blessing and praise. So to start this night, to get us ready to repent, we're going to bless the Lord. That's what they do. And then for the rest of the verses, they're just praising God. There's four things that they're doing, four reasons why they're praising God. Number one, he says, praise God, before we confess, praise God because of his, his work as creation. He's an almighty creator who made everything. Verse 6, you are the Lord, you alone. You've made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. Then he goes on. The Levites say, praise God, not just for being a great creator, but also for his work of election. God chose Abraham, and through Abraham, the covenant began. In verse 7 to 8, it says, you are the Lord, the God who chose Abraham and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made with him the covenant to give to his offspring the land. Goes on. There's no sin mentioned yet. He goes, and let's keep praising God because of his great redemption. God is worthy to be praised. Look what he did in the Exodus in Egypt, verses 9 to 12. And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his land. And lastly, praise God because of his provision. God is worded to be praised because he provided for his people in the wilderness. Verse 13 to 15. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for them. Pretty much what they're doing is they're summarizing the Old Testament. Saying, hey, we're going to confess our sins, but let's praise God. Why are the Levites doing this? Why in a prayer meeting that's about confession of sins in the last night of a retreat... Why are the Levites starting it by saying, let's praise God for who he is, and let's praise God for what he's done? I don't know about you, but sometimes when it's late at night and it's midnight, uh, I just look for things on the internet to what, just to research, like Wikipedia is my friend late at night, uh, YouTube's my friend late at night. And if you're like me, let me introduce you to another friend, okay? It might get you up late at night. It's this website called TV Tropes. Have you guys heard of uh, TV Tropes before? It's... You're in for a long night. It's just a, a website that describes um, different tropes of how movies or TV shows, what they kind of have that are familiar to modern culture. And what by, they mean by tropes are pretty much like different cliches or common plots that you see that TV shows often do. It's just kind of like a common theme, like, oh, it's one of those shows. So, for example, here's one TV trope that's popular. He loves her, she loves him, he loves her, and they keep missing each other. That's like The Office, right? It's like the show where you, someone likes each other, but the other person doesn't, and then it kind of keeps going back and forth. It makes it dramatic. That's a TV trope. It's a very common thing that, that people use to make the plot of a TV show. Or here's another TV trope, uh, a dystopia where there's uh, the end of the world, and you have these rugged survivors just trying to survive. That's The Walking Dead, right? There's shows like that that are, oh, that's like a Walking Dead show, and that's a common TV trope. Well, here's a TV trope that I feel like some of us are familiar with that actually has a term. It's called King Incognito. I don't know if you guys have heard that before. King Incognito. And what that trope is, it's a common theme you see in TV shows where the protagonist, they meet somebody, and they're just like, oh, hello, and they're just helping them along, and this person's acting whatever the way they're acting, they're doing bad things, and all of a sudden that person goes, I'm actually not a commoner, I'm a king. And you go, oh. it's like Aladdin, right, when Aladdin saw Jasmine, and he's just like, oh, my gosh, you're the princess. That's a common trope. It's something that you see all around TV. And what happens is when that person realizes they're the king 
all of a sudden, they get so ashamed. They go, oh my gosh, I can't believe I behaved that way. I can't believe I treated you that way. I am so sorry. I did not know who you were. And that's kind of a common thing that you see all the time in movies and in television. The king incognito. All of us, naturally as human beings, we are all following the king incognito trope with God. That's how our hearts naturally are. Even though we might believe God is out there, that God exists, we don't recognize him naturally for who he is. We naturally think God, he's, if he's there, he's distant, he's far away, doesn't really care about his creation, just do what you want to do. Or if he's close to us, he's like a life coach. He's like, hey, I'm here for you. I'm, I'll be there for you. I hope you get that job. I hope you get that relationship. What do you need from me? I'll be there for you. Therefore, if we ever break God's commands or we ever do something wrong, well, yeah, no big deal. It's okay. He doesn't care. Or he understands. He's my life coach. And that's how we naturally view God. He's like a commoner. He's someone who's just kind of there. What the scripture tells us is that if that's you, you are struggling with the king incognito trope. That is the script that you are working your life on. Because scripture tells us God is not just any type of person who's out there like a life coach. God is great creator who made all things, all powerful and mighty God. And God is not just distant who doesn't care about us. He is the great redeemer involved with his people, cares about his creation. And not only that, he is the great sustainer. He is still here making all things work. In other words, he's the king. He's the king. And that's why... For us, once we understand that, we can see sin for the problem that it is. You see, sin, according to the Bible, the problem with sin, it's not just sin itself, but who it is you're sinning against, that's what makes sin so wrong. Not the action of sin only, but the actual object of sin, who you are sinning against. My son, he uh, started the first grade. So he went to school and because, I'm not sure if this is a COVID restriction, but we just drop him off at the gate and he's gone. Like, we don't know what's going on, who his friends are, who's he interacting with. We just don't know anything. So when he comes back after school, we, me and my wife, we always ask him, hey, how was school today? Tell us everything. We became those parents. Like, we just ask him every detail. Like, what did you eat for lunch and so forth. Now, imagine if I asked my son, how was his day? And he told me, oh, he got in trouble because he punched his classmate in the face. Now, if he said that, I'd be like, well, son, what did he do? Why did you punch him? I'd ask him a lot of questions going, you can't do that, and so on and so forth. But imagine if he said, oh, actually, I, it's not, it wasn't my classmate. I punched my teacher in the face. I'm Asian, so I respect authority. I'd be like, what did you do? <laughs> and that would just, no reasoning will matter. Nothing would justify that. He's in big trouble. He's in big trouble. Why? I mean, it's still a punch. The action wasn't very different. But what changed everything? Who did he punch? The, the, the first grade classroom uh, friend and the teacher makes all the difference in the world of the offense. I think that's often why we struggle to see our sins as being as bad as they are. It's not because we have a low view of our sin. It's because we have a low view of God. We have a low view of God. Even though we do things that we shouldn't do, we think, ah, it's okay. Who are, is, that that, is it that bad? Is it really that bad? And therefore, at most, what we'll do is we won't struggle needing to repent of it. We'll experience what, um, what the uh, British uh, pastor, Martin Lloyd-Jones, what he says is we do remorse. 
instead of repentance. We're remorseful. And this is what Martin Lloyd-Jones says is the difference. He says, quote, the man who suffers remorse, he is a man who, in a sense, looks at the facts, but does not spend much time to think about it. Ah, he says, I was a fool. I should not have done that. And he forgets and goes on. That is remorse, and it is of no value. Repentance is a much, much deeper thing. Repentance does not just mean that you are pulled up, that you are aware that things are not as they ought to be, and that there is something wrong. No, you go on to a realization of the seriousness of what is wrong, and it's appalling character, and that is an essential part of repentance. A man awakens to the seriousness of what he has done. And that's why we see what Nehemiah, the book, the book of Nehemiah chapter 9 is doing. The people don't realize what they have done because they forgot who their God is. And the key for them to recognize that we have to repent, we have to see that we can't just let this rottenness be there, is remember who God is, who it is that you are sinning against. And so here's the question for us before we move on. When it comes to your sins, when it comes to your life, when it comes to how you relate with God, do you struggle with the king incognito? Do you practice remorse? but there's not really been repentance in your life for a long time. If you're new or exploring the faith, this is your first time coming to our church, you might sometimes meet Christians and wonder, why are they so uptight about sex? Why are they so uptight about money or moral issues or how they spend their time? And this is very understandable. Why do Christians not just loosen up? What's the problem? But the key is you actually have to take a step back before you ask that question and ask, well, who is God? And does this God care about how we live? Before you question the behavior of Christians, who is it that this God they claim to worship, and how do they view how this God is supposed to relate to us? Realize nothing about Christianity, nothing about the Christian faith is ever going to make sense until you tackle that question first. And I invite you in our church for that to be a journey for you to tackle. But if you're a Christian and you go, I know God is king, I know he is ruler, he cares about what I do, have you forgotten who God is? Does your life reflect that you have forgotten that the sins that we do, God actually cares about? And it's a deep offense to your king. Have we tolerated sin in our lives where we practice remorse but not much repentance? Before we expect God to do anything in our church or anything in our lives, we have to see that God, he tells us we can't just leave that alone. Like my neighbor said, it's going to just be something that's rotten in your soul and we have to practice something. We have to practice repentance, a turning away, a seriousness to this is something that we cannot tolerate in our lives or in our community. Why? Why does that matter? What happens when you practice repentance? That leads to the second point, the intimacy, the intimacy of repentance. So the people, they start this prayer meeting by praising God, praising God, look what God has done, look what God has done. And all of a sudden, in verse 16 and in verse 26, the prayer shifts. Now comes a part where after praising God, they go, oh, Let's look at ourselves for a bit. And so when they look at themselves in verse 16 to 21, they're talking about these specific stories in the Old Testament where they're going, this is how our people messed up. This is how our people messed up. And this is how our people messed up. Specific stories that are given throughout the Old Testament. But then verse 26 to 31, the passage that we read, they do something interesting. They don't talk about specific stories, but now they talk about general patterns. When they look at the stories, they're like, you know, this is what happened with our people. This is what happened with God. And here is the general pattern. God is faithful to his people. The people disobey God. They sin against God. And then God, what he does is he gives the people to foreign oppressors. Look what it says in verses 22 and 26 and 27. The people are praying, you gave them kingdoms and peoples. Nevertheless, 
They were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets. And therefore, you gave them into the hand of their enemies. Verse 28, they say it again. But after they had rest, they did evil again before you. And you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. So that's the pattern. God faithful, people sin, cast out, and oppressors oppress them. Why was that going on? Why was it when Israel sinned, all of a sudden foreign oppressors would come throughout the Old Testament? And here's the reason why. God wasn't with them. God was no longer present with his people protecting them when the people were in sin. And the reason why is because this shows us that sin, it always does something. What sin does is it always separates us from ourselves, from other people, but in the Old Testament especially from God. It separates us from the intimacy with God. And it's not just true with us and God, it's true of every relationship. Every relationship you are in, when you sin against one another, it's going to create some type of separation of intimacy. Let me give you an example. Imagine after service, you come to me and you go, hey, have you seen the movie Shang-Chi? I'm like, I have. And you go, are you a Marvel fan? I'm like, I am. Fellowship, right? <laughs> like we're going to fellowship right there. And imagine we became really close and we started to grab dinner, we would hang out, our families hung out, uh, we just messaged each other, we just become close, right? Now imagine as we're close, someone you know really close to you go, hey, I heard you're getting close to, to Pastor Tom here. And they go, yeah, he's, he's a good guy. And they go, hey, you know he's talking smack about you all the time? You're like, what do you mean? Oh, he always says like, man, your, your voice is really annoying and you always bug him and he, he, he feels pity upon you. That's why he's hanging out with you. Like he doesn't like you. Now imagine you hear that, and all of a sudden you get a text from me going, hey, want to grab dinner? It's going to feel weird, right? It's going to be strange. And imagine even if you talk to me about it going, hey, were you talking smack? I'm like, no, I never talk. I love you. You're great. I don't know what you're talking about. It's still going to be weird because there's this, now there's this tension going on between us. And it doesn't matter what I do. I can buy you all the dinners I want afterwards. I can invite you to a Laker game. I can have, watch MCU movies with you all the time. But something has been broken in that moment. Intimacy. Intimacy has been broken. There's now a barrier between us, and it's not going to be fixed until something happens called confession. Until we talk about it. Until we actually address what the problem is. And this is similar to what happened with Israel and God. God did not look upon Israel's sins when they sinned against him and going, you know, you better worship me more. And once you worship me more, then I'll come and rescue you. Then I'll come back in your presence. Not to me, the good sacrifices, then I'll come to you. What do we see in the text? The people, they all did something. In verse 27 it says, in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you. The people cried out to God. And that's when God came and rescued them. In verse 28, yet when they turned and they cried out to you, you heard from heaven. And many times you delivered them according to your mercies. Why did they always cry out to God in the midst of their troubles? Because in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14, God told them this. When you're in trouble, in verse 14, he says, If my people who are called by my name, if they humble themselves and they pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sin and hear the land. In other words, if you confess and you repent and you talk about what happened, I will come to you. And there will be a restoration of intimacy, a restoration of our relationship. Now, if this is true, if this is how God works, then this explains for a lot of us in this room why we are in the situation that we are in. And let me explain. There's an author, her name is Sue Johnson. She's a British psychologist, and she's pretty much like a marriage guru. 
And she has, she's all about attachment theory and she's all about the idea that, hey, when you're married to one another, um, the problem that married couples have, the reason why they have such dysfunction, it's not the conflict that they go through. It's not the arguments that they have. It's how they approach their conflict. It's how they approach the arguments. That's what causes marriages to be dysfunctional. And the way she calls it, she says, she says that most married couples, they approach conflict in one of three ways, and they're all dysfunctional. She calls them dances. There's a way that married couples dance, and if you dance this way, you're going to have problems in your marriage. Here's the first dance, okay? The first way that people dance that causes dysfunction. She calls it attack, attack. Pretty much the married couples come, they're married, and they just attack each other. Their whole thesis when they have a fight is, you're wrong and I want to tell you why. And the other person goes, no, you're wrong and I want to tell you why. And when you have a couple where they're both confrontational and they fight all the time, you know when they're having problems. They come to church in separate cars. They don't sit next to each other. They eat after church separately. That's that couple. It's just really explicit. Very volatile. Very volatile couple. And that's one way that couples fight. Attack, attack. Here's the second way that she says couples attack. Or not attack, how to go through conflict. Pursue withdrawal. One person goes, hey, we have a problem. Let's talk. Let's talk. The other person goes, leave me alone. Like, ah, it's so stressful. And it's like this dance where this person is chasing them because they want to talk. And another person just wants to avoid. Very frustrating. It's a very frustrating relationship to have because you're just on different pages. It creates a lot of dysfunction when that takes place. One person will, if you ask them how's marriage, they'll be like, it's great. The other person will be like, it's horrible. And it's just confusing. That's the withdrawal, pursue, dance. Now here's the third one, the third one that Sue Johnson mentions that I feel like a lot of us, I'm not sure if we've been in when we're married, but we probably saw a lot in our parents. It's called withdrawal, withdrawal. What that means is when you look at the couple, everything seems fine. They live together, they share the same bedroom, they eat their, the meals together, they come to church together, they go home together, and yet something seems off. Something seems off with this couple. And the reason why it's off is because they have problems, they just never talk about it. They have hurts, they never bring it up. They have conflict, but they kind of just avoid it. And as a result, there's not much intimacy that seems to be there. They come to church together, but you never see them hold hands. They, they have company, but they don't really hang out one-on-one -on -one too much or have a conversation. And the reason why is because they don't just talk about the issues that are going on. They're just kind of going through the motions of marriage. They just kind of go through, and I saw that a lot with like maybe uh, my parents were going through the motions, living together, and yet a lot of issues that they just kind of don't address. That's a couple that's very dysfunctional. It's a very dysfunctional relationship. And I can't help but think that a lot of us in this room, we're dancing with God that way. A lot of us, that's what our dance with God looks like. Everything seems fine. You guys look great. You have your Bibles. You come to church. You're, you try to pray. You try to serve. And yet, when we ask how are things spiritually, it's like, oh, something feels off. Oh, I don't know. I just feel kind of blah. And it's like, it doesn't make sense. Like, what's going on? You're doing all the right things. What's happening? You just kind of lack intimacy with God. And you don't know why. And oftentimes when this happens, we think, oh, maybe I just need more church. I need more Bible study. I need something more. Or I need a better church. Maybe if I go to a different church, then it will be better. Or maybe I need a book. Do you have a book you could recommend, Pastor Tom? Do you have a book that I could read? Or I need counseling. Maybe I just need someone to counsel me and help me with this. And those things might be helpful. But maybe it could be that there's something that, not that you need to do, but you need to start doing again 
which is maybe there are sins and idols in your heart, and it's been a long time since you've addressed it. It's been a long time since you confessed it. It's been a long time since you repented of it. And until you're willing to address those sins or those idols in your life, you're really going to struggle experiencing God's presence. One author, it's not, on the, it's not on the slide, but he says it like this. He says, quote, your sin may be a private thing to you, but it's not a private thing to God. And if it's not dealt with, then don't be surprised when Jesus intervenes in your life. And don't be surprised if even the tiniest spiritual objective becomes impossible for you. It's really hard to feel God's presence and intimacy when you're always prioritizing work, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, everything else besides God. And you go, why isn't God, how come my spiritual life is so off? Because not just because that's happening, you're not really talking about it with God. It's really hard to experience intimacy with God when you have all these broken relationships and you're just like, ah, that's just there. You just don't do anything about it. But I want to be close to God. That's, that doesn't work that way. It's really hard to experience intimacy with God when you're like, I can sleep with whoever I want. It's okay. God understands. I can still be close to him. And I'm not saying just because you do that, you're going to not experience intimacy with God. We're all sinners. We all struggle. The problem is when we do that and we don't repent of it. When we don't address it. When it's the last thing we want to talk about. The last thing we want to pray about. The last thing we'll ever share with our church members. The last thing we'll ever address when we think about our spiritual lives. Is, is there something that I'm doing or that I've done that I just have not resolved and brought to the Lord? Just like any relationship, it's going to feel weird. There's going to be a barrier. It doesn't mean you're outside the relationship with God. We believe that it's by faith that you are in a relationship with God, not by works. But to experience that relationship with God, it's really hard to do when sin is present and it's not being addressed. Because sin always separates. It always creates a barrier. It always breaks intimacy. And that's why many of us right now, you are dancing the dance of withdrawal, withdrawal with God. Because you presume that God doesn't care. This, you don't care. This is just the way it is. You just go through the motion. It's a dead faith. It's a type of faith that's very dysfunctional. And we think that's just the way it is. And we're used to it. But just as a marriage is not meant to lack intimacy, this is not the way Christianity is supposed to look in the life of the church. We are not meant to just go through the motions and think it's okay. We're not meant to live a dead faith, but we're meant to constantly revitalize that faith through what? Confession and repentance. Confession and repentance. And is this you? Is this how you're dancing with God right now? Do you feel far from God, even though it seems like everything you're doing is so close? You're sharing meals with him, you're sharing life with him, but he still seems so far. It could be you need to amp things up. It could be all spiritual practices need to grow. Or it could be there's something deep in your heart that you're just not confessing that you think God is okay with. And in reality, it's a big problem. It's creating a barrier. And if this is you, I hope that we could start to introduce that dance move into our lives with God. Where we, and we call it repentance. We call it where we actually come before the Lord in honesty. And not just go through religiosity and go through the motions where we bring up what are the issues and what does God think about it. And that now leads to the last point, the practice of repentance, the practice. Man, if I stopped here, we're all in trouble. Uh, we'll just be guilt-driven. I better repent because God is king and, you know, so very justice-driven. Or I better repent because I don't want God to leave me. And you feel very driven by fear in that way. And that's, uh, those might be reasons to repent, but if you only repent that way, and perhaps that's the only way we have repented in the past, you're repenting like a religious person. It's just very fear-driven. It's out of guilt. It's out of shame. 
But what's really interesting is when you look at the prayer of confession in Nehemiah, that's not what drives them to come to God. What drives them to come to God is not because they feel so guilty that we need to confess, but look what they say in verse 30, 31. It says, they're doing this because it says, Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end for them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. The reason why they're able to practice repentance and come before God, what drove them, is they know who God is. In the Old Testament, back in the day, all the gods, they were wrathful gods. They can show mercy, but they were wrathful. And if you had to get lucky, if you knew, like, oh, are they going to be merciful to me? So you offer sacrifices and so forth. But what made the God of the Bible so different, unique, was, wasn't just that he was capable of practicing mercy. He is mercy. That's who he is. My kids, when they do something wrong, if my son is holding something, he drops it, oops, I'm very gracious. I'm like, it's okay, my beloved son. We all do that. Let me help you and pick it up. And I put it back up, but don't do that again. If he spills it again, I'm like, how dare you? What's wrong with you? Well, you're not getting that again. And it's like, because I am like the Old Testament gods, filled with wrath, filled with anger, capable of mercy, but have very limited amount. Two times. <laughs> up to two times I can, my mercy withstands. That's just, that's who I am. That's how human beings are. God doesn't just have a little bit of mercy in him. God is mercy. He is mercy. He's rich in mercy. That's why Dane Ortland in his book, Gentle and Lowly, he says this, quote, if mercy was something God simply had, while his deepest nature was something different, there would be a limit on how much mercy he could dole out. But if he is essentially merciful, then for him to pour out mercy is for him to act in accord with who he is. It is simply for him to be God. When God shows mercy, he is acting in a way that is true to himself. In other words, come to the Lord in your shame. Come to the Lord with your sin. Because God, he is not a God who's having his arms folded, looking upon you going, you did it again. You know better. You've been to church your whole life. Are you serious? That's not who God is. That's how I am, maybe. That's how our parents are. That's how maybe you are. But God is a God, again, who's not just capable of mercy. He is merciful. And Israel knew this. That's why Israel came to him. God said he's merciful. And Israel, they look at the life of their ancestors going, and he is merciful. Look at all the ways he's been merciful. And that's why they would come to God in repentance because they know mercy will be granted. For us, we hear God is merciful, but do you think he's really merciful? Do you look at your life and you really think, and he is merciful? For some of us, maybe. Maybe for us it's evident God's mercy in our lives. But for some of you, maybe it's hard. Maybe for some of you, when you look at your life, it's really hard to see, is really God merciful? I went through a lot of stuff. I've been mistreated by people. I've been misunderstood, betrayed, taken advantage of, wounded, rejected, even by people in the church. It's really hard to see, is God really merciful? And again, I love what Dane Ortland says. He says, realize the evidence of God's mercy, it's not when you look at your life, but when you look at his. In the gospel, we're told that God came down in the person of Jesus Christ, and he was mistreated. He was misunderstood. He was betrayed. He was taken advantage of. He was wounded. And he did it eternally in your place. He walked through the valley of condemnation, rejection, and hell for us. And even if you squander this gift of what the gospel is over and over again, he responds by offering even more mercy. 
because he's a merciful God. I like, again, what Ortland says, the things that make you cringe the most, it's actually things that make him hug you the hardest. However, you can only experience that mercy in your life when you come to the Lord in repentance. You can only realize this is who God is when you actually come before him and you experience that for yourself. And so as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper, I'm going to invite us to not just go through the motions, but to practice repentance. To practice a time of repentance in our lives. Perhaps for the first time in a long time, or maybe for the first time we've ever done. Uh, now, when you think of, before we close in prayer, when we think of repentance, um, oftentimes we just think, just feel sad, right? I'm just, I'm just going to feel sad about something. And repentance is a little bit more nuanced than that. And so I just want to, let me break it down, and then we'll pray, uh, and then we'll take the Lord's Supper. But I want to break it down real quickly for those of us who might need a guide of what it even looks like to repent of anything. Uh, if you just go the I want to be sad part, and that's it, uh, it's too simple. And you're not really sad. Like, you don't, you don't really, you're, you're being religious. Uh, I really like the way it's broken down in somewhere I read where repentance is actually stages. There are stages of repentance where if you've done something wrong or you're doing something wrong, it's not an automatic fix. There are stages you go through if you want to not just have remorse, but genuine repentance. And here are the stages that people often need to go through. Stage one is conviction. Do you feel convicted that this is something you need to address? Is there something in your life where you go, you know, I've been doing this for a long time, and people have called me out, but I just kind of ignore it, but it's wrong. And I don't feel it's wrong, but I know it is. That's where conviction begins. Is there a conviction to even address something that's happening in your life? That's step one. Here's the second step. Confession. Confession. Now, confession is a little different than repentance. Confession is, you may not feel it, but you're articulating what's happening. God, I'm doing this. I am doing this, and wow, as I say it out loud, that's pretty bad. Or as I do it, as I articulate it out loud, huh, it sounds bad, but for some reason my heart's not moved. What's wrong with me? That's confession. You're literally articulating whatever it is that you feel convicted that something's off. Then comes number three, repent. Repentance. Now it's the inner work of, you know, help me, Lord. Help me to commit to fight against this. Help me to commit to not let this continue to reign over my life. And then number four is restitution, which is not just an inner commitment, but I'm going to try to fight against this with my life. Take small steps. I don't know how, but I'm going to really fight so that it's not just words in my mouth or in my heart, but it's actually action in my life. And then comes the last step, which is rejoicing, which is God is with you, journeying with you, a deeper level of intimacy with you, rejoicing with you as you share a life that you're called to live with him. I don't know where you are in those steps. I don't know what it is that you're going through. We all have different things that we do that are filled with shame, that we keep in the dark, that we don't really bring up. God knows everything that's going on. And what I want to do is I want to invite us, when we take the Lord's Supper, to have a moment to pause, to reflect, and even practice steps of repentance together. So let me pray for us, and then we'll take the Lord's Supper. Let's, let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, it's a message, O oh Lord, that is not easy to hear for us to talk about how you are a great and mighty God, and yet oftentimes we fall into the same pattern that your people have always fallen into, which is, O oh Lord, we reject your goodness, we minimize, O oh Lord, our faultiness, and we just continue to live the life that we live, and yet we're confused why you're, you feel so far and why oftentimes our lives feel so messy. Help us, O oh Lord, to not continue in this way, but especially as your church, to come before you and to recognize that, Lord, even though we constantly fall to sin, we constantly fall to 
the temptations of our lives. We constantly fall away from you. You are a God who is merciful. You don't just practice mercy, but you are mercy. You want us, O oh Lord, to come before you so that we can experience the type of intimacy and rejoicing in the Lord that perhaps is hard to when we experience, O oh Lord, the brokenness of sin in our lives. And so may we take small steps to the church, corporately and even individually, and may it begin now as we celebrate, O oh Lord, the Lord's Supper together as your church. And so would you bless our time and pray to us all in your son's name.